0: Alain you is my best friend, a French man, but he wrote a very good book, The Quoi Sarkozy et il nom," of what Sarkozy, the president, is the name, where he just draws attention to some simple facts, which are, we, when we hear of France, we all think about French Revolution, equality, great enthusiastic movements, you know, but this is France which explodes every, I would say, 30, 40 years. In between, the France is a very opportunistic, conservative country. The thesis of Badiou is that uh, if there is a figure which stands for what we call La France Profonde, the deep France, this traditional, it's Marshal Petain. It's this type of... So, in other words, I was said not to say even much more bad things. For For example, when... French or other Westerners, but in this case French, come here and teach you about tolerance and civilization, no? Uh, Tell them simply like, you know, uh, I'm sorry, but till now we were following, we here, all of you, and of us, uh, Serbs, Albanians, we were following the other example of France, you know, like uh, Qatar, you know that, this was the greatest brutal crusade, this is the arch model of ethnic cleansing, when... Under the pressure of the French king, you know, when was this, I think, 12th century, they organized a crusade against the Qatar in Languedoc in the south, and this was like much more violent than the crusades in... In, to the Holy Land which were all of a comedy as we know, know my favorite crusade is I think the second one where they stopped on the way in Constantinople and robbed it and then they went home <laughs> why go further <laughs> no. but you know how that crusade functioned like they were really simply killing them all and if you want a formula of obscene theological ethnic killing it is provided But one of the archbishops who was a crucial person, probably you know the story of the crusade, a city, Qatar city, surrendered to the French Vatican forces, and 60,000 people around, I think, and uh, even the military were not so hard, the military came to that bishop, I'm sorry, don't know his name, but you find this in every history of, uh, of uh, Qatar crusade, no, he came to the archbishop, who was the the politkomissar, ideological leader, and asked him what to do. The bishop says, kill them all. But then the, the general, brutal soldier, said, but wait a minute, around half of them are probably not Qatars but our guys still. And you know the famous answer, Dieu recommettre le siens kill them all, God will already distinguish them as dead, who are (laughs) ours, who are not, no. So, you know, don't let yourself be blackmailed by civilized West. You should exactly give them the opposite message. Yes, we have bad sides, we kill, and so on. When we do this, we imitate you. Get a little bit of arrogance, my God. So, when I was uh, talking with friends today, we had a nice idea about that poster which was mentioned yesterday. You know, uh, cat and the dog, and uh, why can't you live together, they do. No? It would be nice if you do it, I put money into it, my God. To do an alter- alternative poster, which you then put on the walls where this one is side by side, the same shot, just like, I don't know how big the scene is, like probably it would be enough some ten... 20 meters behind imagine camera moving back and you see all the trainers and whips you know, to keep, to keep the dog and the cat the way it is that's the truth, you know the trainers behind who are them so again, the, my favorite and it shocked my friends now this will be very brutal, I warn you but I think it's the moment of truth in, it. in one of my early books I used it when there was this was earlier war I think in Bosnia there was a round, ra- maybe you know the story, there was a round table on Austrian TV, yeah, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> where uh, three people were there uh, Bosnian, I mean Bosniak, a Serb, and some stupid Austrian ec- ecology, pisnik, whatever. And then the Bosnian and Serb were, okay, within their nationalist logic both, but at least within that logic arguing, you know, one say, no, this land is ours because of that, blah, blah, doesn't matter. The point is that at a certain point, the ecologist, pacifist, thinking he did something deep, you know, like, uh, turned to both of them and said, but... but Why are you hating each other? Why did you just say, basically, we love each other and let's live in peace and so on? And then something unique happens, which gives me a little bit of hope that maybe we in Balkan are not totally lost. For a brief moment, you could see a kind of solidarity of the Bosnian and the Serb exchanging a glance, like, who is this idiot? What is he talking about? I think the only hope of us is these two getting together. Let's get rid of that ecology pacifist and we will do something with, with our life Okay, let's go on. So we are here at the topic now a little bit more serious of uh, so-called uh, cultural differences. They are interesting. We should study them, but not to mystify them into some kind of deeper truth. You know, what is your, what is my true identity. If you study them, you discover wonderful things about nothing deep, but nonetheless crucial about how national, ethnic, whatever, identities are structured. And while I had a debate with my friends this afternoon, you drew my attention not to a wonderful fact. I wasn't aware of it, how another term of censorship that those highly developed countries, so-called civilized impose of us is to use the term ethnicity, no? Like you know we are all equal but some are true nations, the other are ethnicities, you know? As ethnicity you are not allowed to have a fully sovereign nation state and so on you see this is I think another implicit censorship models so again, about these differences uh, they are interesting because Today you hear again and again the age of ideology is over, we live in post-ideological times and so on. Well, it is precisely this what I will comment a little bit on today, focusing on different modes that ideology survives today. But I would like to begin with a little improvisation on this uh, cultural, cultural difference. A year ago I was in the United States, in Harvard. I hate this big arrogant. American universities, because they think they are the center of the world, but at least in social sciences, really nothing interesting is happening there. If you want to go to study the United States, forget Columbia, Harvard, Stanford, uh, Princeton, they are dead. They just think they are the center of the world. Much more interesting thing happens here and there in small departments. Okay, but what happened there? Something very interesting, in an obscure way. After the talk, we had dinner, and we didn't know each other, mostly unknown to each other, guests, professors, some older students, and the old professor who moderated, invited us, moderated dinner, said at the beginning, okay, can please, some 10, 12 of us, each of you present itself, stating first, name and workplace, second, what he or she is working on, orientation, and third, Sexual orientation. Now, I was a little bit shocked by that. Like, like Paco, what's this to you? No? Uh, but then uh, something interesting came to my mind, how it's too easy to accuse Americans of, you know, they like to come open more and more, to publicly confess their secret sex orientations, whatever. But that, it's not as simple as that. In Europe... Uh, That in Europe, uh, it's not that we are just more dignified. It's just they set the limit of decency, what you can publicly confess or not differently. So it's not that Americans are more vulgar, they confess everything. I remember two years ago a friend of mine, it's nothing undignified what he did, I even can call him, a very good Jewish theological thinker, close to psychoanalysis, Eric Santner who wrote, wrote a wonderful book on German ideology, my own private Germany. Uh, he visited me in Slovenia, and we went to do something that I really hate, to Slovene Beach there. And I don't know how it is here. Okay, it's nothing here because, haha, you don't have a beach. You will, you will, you will have it when you will unite with Albania. No, but you don't yet have it. No. Uh, uh, <coughs> Slovenia, probably, it's... Totally liberated, practically most of the women are topless, no? It's considered simply neutral, normal. To be a little bit male chauvinist, if you are not topless, it's not because you're ashamed, <laughs> but because you're old ugly and don't want to, no? And the problem was that uh, this guy, I noticed, he felt so... And to avoid a misunderstanding, Eric Center, my friend, he's not in any way sexually, socially repressed. No, no, he's... Normal opening, slightly promiscuous. But nonetheless, he was terribly oppressed, you know, like, all the time. This was too much for him. Like, you see a breast there, you turn another breast (laughs) So this this is, I think, an interesting point. How, uh, for us, you see, we both have our restraints. Let's not blame Americans who, they are vulgar. We just set the standard, or set the limit at a different point. In both cases, I think, it's not simply that one is more open than the other. In both cases, opening is another way to set a distance. If in Europe a woman goes topless, the message is not, come and fuck me or what. The message is, fuck you, I can do it, but you have no chance, you know. That's why I support it, not because I'm a male chauvinist and (laughs) want to see me, but because I know what this means. It means... You absolutely, this gives you no right or whatever you know. I'm so strong that I can afford even this without giving you any cheap sexual signals or what. Uh, In the United States, it's the same, but it's more typical for their Protestant attitude. There, you can confess, say, but in this way, you know, you just confess it, but how to put it, the very fact of saying it publicly means, but I keep my intimacy to myself, it's of no concern to you. You just abstractly say, I don't know, I'm bisexual or whatever, and it's, you totally, how should I put it, it's in a way, almost, I would say, slightly depressing, because you totally desexualise sexuality itself. You turn it into another item to report, how should I put it, no? (laughs) Uh, So, again, I'm not a naive Wilhelm Reich leftist who claims, you know, let's open it, permissivity, and so on. My formula that I really like would have been maybe the formula of, uh, you know, the American writer Gore Vidal. He's relatively well-known. Okay. Uh, Once he's bisexual, and once he was asked, it's his famous TV interview, he was asked, who was your first sexual partner, a man or a woman? He gave a perfect answer. He said, I was too polite to ask, you know, before. That's the attitude we need. I mean, you know what I mean? That's what I was aiming at yesterday. I totally believe in universality, not in this. I have my culture, you have your culture. How do we know that we ever understand each other? Where? When we have a common struggle, we quickly understand each other. But, but this private domain, sexual identities and so on, that's different. So... Uh, What can we learn from this? Another thing, uh, I wonder if you, if some of you were lucky enough, and I say this without any irony, because the United States is a great country, at least interesting to see. If you were lucky enough to visit United States, at least big cities, I say at least because obviously only in big cities you get hotels with high many floors, like more than 14, you will see why, I noticed a strange phenomenon there that, uh, maybe you noticed it again if you we were there, they skip the 13th floor. They do 12, 14, Like, for obvious reasons. 13th is uh, bad luck, who will live there? But what interests me is not this fact, but what a naive notion of God or faith this implies. Like... As if God doesn't know that 14 is really 13. You know what I mean? (laughs) It implies... I I mean, is God so stupid that you will... Like, uh, there is a similar story from Slovenia which happened. My ex-friend, I underline three times ex, because now I think he should be arrested. uh, Igor Bavcar, who was head of that famous committee for liberation, dissident, whatever, uh, told me that when he became, after elections, the Minister of Interior, and this was still the early populist phase of democracy, so people addressed with all their difficulties, the politicians, and she got a report from an old lady living on number 13 in a suburban house, and she brought him a letter claiming that strange things happened to her. Three times his house was broken into, the uh, 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 windows were broken, a continuous series of misfortunes. And she, she told the minister she thinks that this must be bad luck because of the number 13, so could she, he the minister, she was asking him, arrange to change the street number, no? Two, I don't know. 11A or 14 or what, no? And then he told her, the minister, because then he called her back and told her, why don't you simply paint, do it yourself without bureaucracy? Paint, I mean, with black painting cover, 13 and paint 14 or whatever. And the lady told him, I already did it, but it doesn't work, you know? <laughs> 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 you know like, this is a very interesting notion of God and faith, that you cannot cheat God so easily, you know. <laughs> God only respects it if it's done properly, bureaucratically done. You know? <laughs> it must be the state decision, how should put it, you You cannot just... Americans don't get this, I claim. They think their logic is, if you do it as in the hotels, no. <laughs> but now, let, let me be more serious. This is what we would have called... the lack of of tradition of collective substance. Americans think that all form of collectivity is just expression of individuality, which is why basically it doesn't matter. You can put it there, 12, 14, and... Because I think this has to be linked to another strange thing that I noticed there. In Europe... Now, don't embarrass me. I don't know how it is here, but what I saw in these two days in your hotels, you are here like... The most of Europe. That is to say, uh, you start with ground floor, which is zero, and then first floor is already one up, and so on. Probably you know that in United States of America they count differently. They start with one. So, first floor means no stairs, you just enter, and you go up. Uh, the problem is the same here, I think. They don't know what is zero. They, to put it in totally abstract terms. For them, uh, zero doesn't already count as one. How I put it? Because zero which counts as one is precisely what in Lacanian psychoanalysis we call the big other, the substance. They immediately start counting. So which is the correct solution? I'm not saying Americans are wrong. I found the correct solution in Poland, Warsaw, where I was incidentally. I came practically from there here five days ago. In a big hotel where I was staying, I discovered the right solution. And this will bring me to the conclusion, if I will have time, of today's talk, something about Alain Badiou, our friend, French philosopher and his ontology. Uh, you know how do they have it in, in Warsaw, at least in the hotel where I was. They start with zero, of course, because zero is ground floor. You don't. But then they immediately glow from zero to two. And I had a nice philosophical lesson from an old gentleman who was, how do you call it, the janitor, the guy who, in expensive hotels, it's too undignified for you to press the buttons, so there is... And I asked him, why this? And he gave me a, my God, a perfect philosophically correct answer. He says, the ground floor should be zero because there are no floors. Of course, it's zero. But, wonderful, foreign He said, but the moment you start to count... You must count zero as one. So, the one should already be two. And this is what Hegelian dialectics is about. If you understand this, I just yesterday read in a newspaper another thing which to give you an idea what I'm aiming at. You know, in the old, old days there were, in these dancing small cafeterias, the so-called jukeboxes. You know, you put on in coins music. I learned that, you know what they had in some American cafeterias in the 50s? Let's say you were a guest in that cafeteria and wanted a little bit of peace. They had a disc, a short one, uh, uh, which had only silence recorded. So, you put a coin and you, you know, this is like zero counted for one. It wasn't simply silence. It was a song which functioned as silence, how should I put it. So you must have this we, you must have this short circuit in order for things to function. So again, why am I mentioning this, apart from telling bad jokes as usual? I mention this because you know when people tell you ooh and endo- ideology and so on, of course maybe I'm not even so sure about that. For most people, we no longer play the game of big ideologies. You sacrifice your life for it. But nonetheless, our everyday life, the the way the most elementary phenomena, kitchens and so on, rituals are structured, you find there a whole network of what one cannot call but ideological presuppositions. Probably everybody knows here, so I will very shortly uh, repeat myself, You know that my example, because of which everybody laughs at me, no, you know it, the toilets. Did you travel to the, if you travel to the West, let's say you travel the three countries, Germany, France, Anglo-Saxon world. Be careful, observe the toilets. You will see, I simplify it a little bit, but it is like this. French toilets are that you my God, it's good that French ambassador is not here now. (laughs) French toilets are so that the hole is in the back. So that when you produce sheet it falls immediately into the hole with water, disappears as soon as possible. Go to United States, you will see a different toilet, which is basically full of water. So that the sheet floats there beneath. No, no, this is not the worst. The worst are the traditional German toilets which are disappearing, which are without water, I mean not being full, but the hole is in front, so that when you produce sheet, it is, as it were, displayed there to smell, to reflect, and so on. This is this old ritual that in the morning you inspect your sheet for worms, for possible whatever. Okay, now I, w- I asked many of my friends, but listen, what's the origin of this? I even, some architect friend gave me two books, on, yes, on structure of toilets. And it's incredible how each nation argues simply in a pragmatic way. Like the Americans say this is the most practical way, you know. The French basically the same. So what does this mean? Then I started to think a little bit and came to the only solution that I found. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying it's the best. I'm saying it's the only solution that I found. <laughs> Going back to philosophy... I remember that, you know, around Hegel's time, the idea emerged in Western Europe of so-called European Trinity. Three key European nations. Germany, France, England, Anglo-Saxon world. The idea is that each of them privileges a certain political domain, sorry, a certain social domain and a certain political orientation. French are left and left revolutionary, and they are, uh, po- they are political. Their big thing is politics. Anglo-Saxon world is, of course, economy and moderate middle pragmatic. Germans are conservative and Dichtung und Denken, uh, thinking, reflecting, and so on. And then, my God, it did strike me. That's it. Listen. The French one, Shit, liquidated, disappear as soon as. Radical. The British one, pragmatic. Pragmatic, float a little bit, we get rid. The German, metaphysical conservative. Let's reflect upon it, and so on. I'm sorry to tell you, but ridiculous as it is, I spoke, coming two weeks ago, I'm still in jet lag, that's why I'm so confused, I was in Australia. And I spoke there with architects, and they admitted to me, knowing this peace of mind, that that's the best explanation they found. I mean, even if it's... Of course, I simplified it a little bit, but the lesson I want to give to you is the following one. That even when you look at the most elementary disposition in a house, where is kitchen, how is the toilet structured, how are the corridors uh, uh, related to rooms, do you go through, uh, from one room directly to the other corridors... This can never be accounted for, explained in a direct uh, utilitarian way. There is always some, some, one cannot but call it in the strongest sense of the term ideological reference in order to explain it. At this level, and then we can go on, on, on from manners, how we say hello to each other. For example, years ago I read much more more modest, non-obscene, but nonetheless interesting analysis of how the kitchen is structured, typical in Denmark and in Sweden. There is some mystery about how, where you push things, when you wash them, dishes, and where you put them to dry, and again, it's clear analysis that there is a whole semiotic system in it. You cannot just ground it in. So, now you will tell me, but nonetheless there are some things which are simply utilitarian. Of course there are. Of course, ultimately, you must go to the toilet, you must wash the dishes, or whatever. But the problem is that you never get rid of this ideological excess. Because even if it is utilitarian, it is still utilitarian in a, precisely when you want to be purely utilitarian, it's utilitarian in, a, in an ideological way. What do I want to say by this? Let's say why do people wear, it's most stupid classical example, why do people wear these used stoned jeans? It's not simply that you want to be practical, utilitarian, no bullshit, with complicated dress, but semiotics is already in it. You want to signal as a meaning that you want to be utilitarian, you know. To bring this attitude to its ridiculous climax, I have some unfortunate friends, whom I hate for this, no, it's not you, sorry, yours is longer, who have, you know, there is a high art in the West, among degenerate intellectuals, to have a short beard, which appears unkept, but you have to spend half an hour every morning (laughs) to, you know, produce... You know, you get my point here. Even when you want to give a signal, I am just, I don't care, I'm utilitarian. It's a signal. You're already caught in ideology. And that's how I noticed that your beloved, uh, whatever they are called, umpik or what stupid, uh, they like these Land Rovers, No. I wonder if this is, again, not a little bit of ideology in it. Like, you are a normal country. Why not normal cars? What I suspect is that there is a little bit of this, you know. Where do you really need Land Rovers? In these wild countries where you are among animals and so on. Do they they not signal a little bit, maybe, you know that. Because, for example, I have a friend in Slovenia, ex-friend, again, I have many ex-friends in Slovenia, who is was a great doctor and he lives close to the center of Ljubljana and worked in a Ljubljana hospital. He has a Land Rover. It's clear why. Not because he needs it, but because he wants to signal that, you see, I'm an authentic wild man, not degenerate with these soft city <laughs> cars and so on and so on. No? That's, that's where you find ideology. At this level, we are more than ever in ideology. At this everyday level where... Although, again, they are the most innocent practices, ideology is at work in them. So, how does this ideology function? Now, as I promised you, there will be maybe, maybe a little bit, but not a a joke or two, but now enough fun, let's do at least a little bit of theory, uh, serious theory. I claim that the basic opposition, which helps us a lot, to understand how ideology functions today, is the opposition between fetish and symptom. This is the psychoanalytic opposition. I will not go in detail into it, just let me give you a very broad, abstract definition. To put it very simply, symptom is a partial truth, Which symptom is the moment where truth returns, where... The whole field is that of a lie. You live in a false universe. Symptom is where the excluded, repressed truth is returning. Fetish is almost the opposite. Now, I know I'm giving here a very simplified version. And, okay, you have to trust me that I know the whole story. (laughs) Uh, Fetish is, on the contrary, a partial lie which sustains the global truth. What do I mean by this? Let me give you a simple example of symptom. Let me go now to, maybe this will even sound an echo to some of your unfortunate experiences. Now I'm not kidding here. Uh, (coughs) Sorry. Something horrible happened, let me clarify through an example. Something horrible happened some ten years ago even more to a friend of mine. It's one of these really uh, stories, not nice. Uh, to cut a long story short, even now it's a little bit traumatic for me to go into it. He was very much in love with his wife. They were young and you know the usual story. The wife feels a slight, slight pain in the breast, goes to doctor, ah, ah cancer, in three months you are dead. No, so she was dead in three months and what happened then? My friend reacted in a fetishist way. Deep. Symptomatic way would be what? To repress it. To, I don't know, throw himself into work or whatever, try to forget it, seeking adventures with other women, whatever. But then the repress would have returned, you know. Whatever you do, somehow it reminds you of what you are trying to forget. Like, if you forgive me, uh, it's in my nature, small obscenities. Like, you know those proverbial stories about an adolescent who... uh, in order to forget his sexual pain being unable to seduce girls takes refuge in mathematics but then even there he cannot escape it, you know he gets a homework you know like how much energy this is more physics is released when two bodies hit each other and so on <laughs> whatever you do like you have a cone how much geometry how much volume you need to fill in a cone or whatever <laughs> whatever you do, this would be the symptom of logic. You try to forget the truth comes back all the time, as it were. <coughs> uh, but my friend did something totally different. His logic was a fetishist one. Which was what? He and we were surprised, his friends, because, my God, he, he was able to talk in a totally cold way, normally about his wife's slow progress of dying, without any trauma. We, we were thinking, my God, is this guy a monster? Or he didn't really love her, but is secretly glad to get rid of her or what? Like, absolutely no problem. Then it took us a couple of months to discover the key to it. All, do you also have them, are you degenerate enough to, the generation means development, to have this <laughs> totally disgusting, for me, habit of having as home pet animals, how do you call them, hamsters, you know. Yeah, okay. All the time he was talking about his wife, he was playing with his hands with a small hamster who was the favorite pet object of his wife. And it's clear that the hamster functioned as a fetish, an element which allowed him to de facto disavow, suspend his knowledge that the wife is dead. You know, it was this typical, what in psychoanalysis we call, fetishist uh, in German, Verleugnung, Disavowal, not denegation, don't confuse them, in French, which means the logic is, je sais bien, mais quand même, I know very well, but. I know very well, my wife is dead, but I deny it. That is to say, you can talk about it, but in a distanced way. How should I put it? Emotionally, symbolically, you don't really accept it. Now you will say, what I'm saying now is the worst amateur psychoanalysis. How do I know this is true? Unfortunately, we got a proof a year later, because as you probably know, hamsters are very vulnerable. They don't live, don't have a long place. So a year, oh yeah, no wonder you, because every, my second friend in Germany has a hamster. You know this, they are very popular there. Oh, really? Oh, okay, no, sorry. What I wanted to say, yeah, is that... At, uh, Okay, this hamster died a year later and my friend instantly got a total breakdown, tried serially. He was serially making a suicide attempt so he had to be hospitalized immediately. So you see how it worked. He didn't oppress. He accepted it, but in a neutralized way. And why do I mention this? I claim that when today, and they like to be, people pretend to be cynics. You know, like, oh, uh, I don't care, brutal reality, I accept it. Uh, you should always ask, that I'm realist, I have no illusions. Okay, okay, where <laughs> is your hamster? You know, like... <laughs> I think that all cynics have, if you look closely, for example, uh, this hamster can be, for example, today, maybe, adults I'm not talking about sexual morality, but pretend to be brutally permissive open, you know. Group orgies, whatever permissibility. Usually the hamster is their child. They're totally horrified by the idea of their child learning about it, no? Literally, if the child learns, all their universe collapses. Somebody must not know. They, They need a naive gaze, as it were, Outside. Or one big ideological hamster today, I claim, is in the West among enlightened capitalists. Uh, what I ironically called Western Buddhism. It's kind of a vague Dalai Lama, Oriental spiritualism. Why is it a hamster? Because uh, it, let's say you are a brutal, effective businessman, playing the part of game and so on. Of course, if you pretend to be human, at the same time, you cannot function in this way. So your hamster becomes, this is why incidentally, the, I read in an analysis that while working classes are still Catholic Christian, the majority of ultra-rich, especially if they are the new Bill Gates-type, digital rich, are mostly some kind of enlightened Dalai Lama, Oriental Buddhists, how should Why? Because the message is, you know, our reality is virtual. So what I'm saying is that uh, while they pretend to be aware that market or their economic rootless activity doesn't really matter, deep, this is how probably Bill Gates experiences himself. Oh, the vanity of my billions. I really want to help the poor, the children now, and so on. But I claim reality is the opposite. This is a hamster. They use this to disavow the fact that their reality is what in they are doing, not in this fake, uh, fake uh, spirituality and so on and so on. So again, my argument against cynicism is that it doesn't work in its very rootless brutality. Like a typical cynic says, listen, who cares about love? What matters is pleasure, money, power. You know, this brutal realism always fails, it's too naive. All cynics need if something that is sacred, they usually don't want even to talk publicly about it. Like, in my books, the example, it's a beautiful one, of this uh, cynical fetish that I usually quote is, you know, Patricia Highsmith, I think the greatest detective writer of the 20th century, uh, she wrote a wonderful short story called The Button. Button, like, uh, uh, like what I don't have. <laughs> uh, it's about... Uh, miserable New York middle class guy who is relatively successful in life happily married the problem is that his child is a Mongoloid how do you call it this really retarded okay it's politically incorrect term Sorry? Oh, yeah, You are more political. No, I am brutal here. <laughs> mongoloid sorry. The furthest I will go is a uh, member of the country between Russia and China, you know. If this makes it more, more politically correct. No, political correctness is not my good side. Okay, what I want to say is that, uh, so really, handicapped child, you know, just smiles stupidly, cannot even... Uh, talk normally. So, out of total despair, one evening he goes out, sees a homeless guy alone in the street who approaches him asking him some money and all his frustrated fury explodes. He beats this guy to death, takes one button, puts him, puts it into his pocket and his life is changed. From that one on, this is his fetish. He, at least once I did strike back and this Whenever, then from then on, whenever he is desperate at his child, he just touches the button. Okay, I did strike back once, it's not hopeless. And the paradox is that even his relation to his child gets much better, he can educate it a little bit, and so on and so on. So, you see how differently they function. Fetish is a lie which allows you to sustain the brutality of social reality so on the contrary symptom is the truth which undermines the lie which you live in this sense you know don't underestimate the fetishists they are not idiots they are not people who i don't know are fixed on a on a leg and then think only about that or not they can be extremely realist because fetish allows them not to be too much uh, affected by it so again, this is, these are the two basic coordinates. Where my idea is that the traditional ideology functioned as symptom, in a symptomal way. Like, you had the general propositions, all men are equal, and then, upon a close analysis, you find symptoms which belied it. Like, you know, this classical Marxist analysis. All men are equal, but then you look closely, and you see that in this apparently general definition, some men are more equal than others, how should I put it? All of a sudden you see that uh, all are equal, but women are not really as equal as men, children are not, foreigners are not, primitives so-called, uh, 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 criminals are not, and so on, and at the end, not many of them <laughs> remain. No, uh, so here you do the symptomal reading. When a liberal tells you, Human rights. This is the standard Marxist praxis, no? To demonstrate how, secretly, in this apparently universal definition, a certain strata, sex, whatever is privileged. Like as every and they are right here, as every member of Oriental countries would have will tell you, the very list of West European human rights accentuates individual choice at the expense of collective identity, so it already implies a certain individualistic society. It's not really neutral. Or then we can go into uh, sexuality, although things are more tricky, I think. More tricky in the sense that, you know, uh, for example, one, one of, and I think this is bad feminism, one of the feminist critiques of human rights is that they rationalize the subject too much they emphasize reason at the expense of emotional ties, and in this sense they privilege masculine against feminine identity. But I think if you accept this, you buy another terrifying cliché, which I think is, from my experience, maybe I live in a crazy society, but among the people who are, I know, uh, men are crazy irrational, you know what I mean? Women, so, you know what I mean? You privilege already certain cliché here. So, but okay, doesn't matter. What I'm saying is that this would be the classical functioning of uh, ideology. Today, more and more, we are getting the fetishist functioning. Cynicism, public cynicism con- uh, connected with this secret fetishist belief. Uh, now I will, but uh, here we should develop things further and introduce two types of fetishism. I think it's crucial to distinguish them. We have first this, let's call it permissive cynical fetishism. This is, I claim, typical of highly developed societies. No, like you are cynical, orgies, whatever, but you have your secret which in your eyes makes you authentic, you know, this is typical brutal rich man, like, I exploit you, beat you, and then, but secretly, oh, but I'm really doing for my son, for my family, I'm secretly good, whatever, okay, but there is another kind of much more brutal fetishism, which is uh, recently gaining ground, so-called, let's call it, potentially fascist populist fetishism, its basic form, but now it's universalized, is anti-Semitism. How does this one function in contrast with classical liberal ideology? It's very interesting. How is the opposition structured? With classical liberal ideology, again, it's that symptomal logic. That is to say, what you can reproach to it is that it's. Universality is a false universality. Again, as I told you, when they talk about equality and human rights, you can show by detailed analysis how these neutral universal human rights are not really as universal as they appear that secretly some is privileged, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, Let's take now the typical example of this fundamentalist populist fetishist logic, antisemitism. There to put it in very simple terms, you have basically a reference to, let's call it, social antagonism, class struggle, and to save the notion of organic community you project, displace, as it were, the origin of evil instability into an intruding outsider. No? Like you say it's all fault of the Jews. In this sense you you avoid the fundamental fact that, that, the, that it's our society itself which is in itself antagonistic and so on and so on. Uh, what is the difference between these two? Ah, if you listen to me carefully, even if you didn't, uh, you got it. To put it in very naive moralistic terms, in the first case, liberal symptom functioning, we have... I'm putting it very naïve. The good, true side is on the surface, hidden beneath it is the bad side, to put it very naively. That is to say, explicit ideologies, equality, justice, who wouldn't agree with it? But then, if you look closely what is behind it, it's exploitation, women are this privilege, other races, and so on and so on. So you have to argue in a critical way against the apparent false universality, against the appearance, for the hidden truth beneath. With fascist, anti-Semitic populism, it's the opposite. It is the ultimate goal, to put it naively, which is a good one. Okay, a good one. Like antagonistic struggle against exploitation. The lie is at the surface that uh, the, that this, as the cause of this antagonism, a Jew is picked out, so you got it. to put it in the first case, the progress is from appearance to what is behind, like you say universal human rights, I say, haha, what is hidden behind is on the other hand, it 's the opposite. I say, Jews are responsible you. Tell me, sorry that I but I gave you the more honorable, less disgusting position. <laughs> you tell me, but don 't you see that when you are attacking Jews, you are really attacking uh, i don 't know financial exploitation and so on, and you are just uh, uh, targeting the wrong guy, as it were, no, but your ultimate goal is okay, this is the classical Marxist still valid, I think even liberals would agree with it analysis of Fascism. You know this old formula, which is correct one, that anti-Semitism is socialism of the poor, or rather of the stupid. You know? People who feel spontaneous aversion against capitalist exploitation and so on, but find the easy way to put the blame on the scapegoat, uh, on the Jews. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because something very interesting of which psychoanalysis can teach us a lot happens here. Uh, although one would have thought that it is much easier to undermine the second position, like if I am anti-Semitic, it should be relatively easy, should have been for you to teach me, but can't you see, when you talk about the Jews, you are really projecting onto them what is, Jews are just an empty vehicle, container, for all that is wrong in our society. It seems evident. To us who are not in it. But as experience teaches us, and psycholytic theory can provide reasons, it's the opposite. That is to say, uh, if you are, now you're again the good guy, I know that. Let's say you are a naive liberal. I try to convince you, but can't you see your universal rights a good idea, but, and so on. Usually, if you are an honest liberal, it will be relatively easy to convince you. No? You will say, oh my God, yes, maybe, and then you will either become a more social liberal, or we should do something, yes, to really include women, no? Although, it's, I found it difficult you in this role. No? <laughs> uh, or, or you will go into cynicism, no? You will say, wait a minute, I'm aware this is enlightened cynical liberalism, where you say, this is more natural. <laughs> when you will, you will say something like, oh, I know, but listen. We cannot really afford true equality. People need something to be duped. Lie is necessary as a social principle. Now, you think I exaggerate here? Ha Look at films. Why was the Dark Knight? Did you see it? I didn't. It's boring. I just saw the beginning at the end. But nonetheless, did the last Batman film? Yeah. Why it's so interesting? Oh my God! It's a disgusting film because you know it's very dangerous ideologically. No wonder people around Ronald Reagan, sorry, around uh, George Bush, President, I read, liked it. You know what happens <laughs> at, at the end? At the end, lie is asserted as a fundamental social principle. That uh, 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 public prosecutor who is the hero fighting the mafia uh, is discovered to be himself a murderer, and then Batman offers himself to take. This murders upon himself, saying, "If we say to the people the truth that the big public figure was himself a murderer, this will undermine the trust of the people into legal system." So I will do it. So it's a very sad lesson of the film. The lesson is we need lie to maintain public order and so on and so on. No, no. And incidentally, if you want, but I will come to this later. Uh, how much we can learn from Hollywood in in the sense of getting from Hollywood films a diagnosis of what goes on. Which is why, but I will be too tired, admit it, my decadent. The first thing I told you, asked you after coming to Pristina two days ago is, where does angels and demons play? (laughs) If I can see it. I'm just interested in what. how it, because another, even purer example, did you see it? I did ten times, but I'm not crazy because of my small son who likes it. Did you see that stupid uh, cartoon uh, Kung Fu Panda? Pure ideology. Why? Just this, is, this fetishist ironic disavowal at its purest. How does the film function? Just remember. You know, okay, I will not bore you. The story is some big, fat Bear, Panda, wants to become a top Kung Fu warrior. And on the one hand, you have all this Oriental mystique, faith, mythology. Kung Fu, faith, being chosen, destiny, sacred mission. At the same time, uh, the film makes fun all the time of its own Orientalist ideology. But you know what's so interesting? That in spite of making fun all the time of it, Ideology still functions, and that's where we are today. In a mysterious way, belief functions. Our beliefs function even if we don't believe in them. How should I put it? You know who I quote him in my last book, which I hope you didn't read. So I can repeat the story. That uh, Parallax view a wonderful anecdote. Did I mention it yesterday, Niels Bohr? I didn't. I hope. Okay. <laughs> You know Niels Bohr, quantum physics, Copenhagen. There is a wonderful anecdote about him, I think, which is the best formula of how ideology functions today in a cynical mode. Uh, Niels Bohr had a house in the country outside Copenhagen, and I read this in a biography of Niels Bohr. And he was visited there by a friend, another scientist, who was surprised to see above the entrance to Niels Bohr's house a horseshoe. Which I don't know how it is here, among you Aborigines in your tribal <laughs> society, or whatever. But in my tribe, no, or Central European tribes, horseshoe. So again, the problem is that we have uh, these two types of fetishism. First, the open fundamentalist fetishist disavowal fundamentalist, which is, let's say, anti-Semitism, but even there, the mechanism is much more refined than it may appear. Let me give you a provocative statement to make it clear what I want to say. Uh, Let's say, now, please... Play a bad guy a little bit. Let's say you are a Nazi—a totally neutral description. <laughs> Let's say you are an anti-Semitic Nazi. Let's say that we debate anti-Semitism. I try to convince you. I tell you, listen. But can't you see Jews are not uh, Jews are not uh, Jews are not uh, so bad or whatever? No. And then we start to debate how Jews real are. I claim the moment I we start to debate in this sense, I, I, as a good liberal, you are the bad guy, I already sold my soul to the devil. Why? Because the moment I accept this debate, the result is always, reality is mixed, like, and I shocked some American friends when I claimed this, but it's, like, you will say, I will say, why do you claim Jews are financially exploiting us? where, let's be open, probably some Jews were very rich in Germany, and were, in this sense, exploiting Germans. So you, you would be able to claim, wait a minute, maybe I exaggerate a little bit, but you cannot say it's totally not true. Or, or one of uh, another standard topic of uh, German-Nazi antisemitism was that the Jews control our media. You will be able to say, which is true. 70% of the journalists were Jews. So what can I say? You will say uh, Jews are seducing our German women. Well, I hope they did, de Putin. among others, not only. You know what I mean? The moment you accept the debate at the level of facts, you, I, this I, I, now I'm the bad guy again, you are absolved of being <laughs> Jew. I, 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 I confuse the terrain. Why? Because when... You here see the Jewish sorry, the Nazi anti Semitic image of a Jew. The true question is not are Jews really like that? That's not the question. The question is why da- does Nazism need the, this figure of the Jew to function, to sustain its ideological edifice? independently of true or not. I follow here Jacques Lacan, who proposed a wonderful formula, crazy. He said, it's a little bit mais chauvinist, that I don't, that's why I don't like it, but it's a wonderful formula. The formula is that even if, let's say a husband is jealous, uh, uh, sus- uh, with a suspicion that his wife is sleeping around with other men, even if all his suspicions are factually true, his jealousy is still a pathological fact. Why? Because the truth problem is not, is it true? But why did he need this pathological fixation on jealousy to sustain its psychic stability? It may be one theory a little bit too naive, I think. Psychoanalytic is suppressed uh, homosexuality. This is the standard, I think, Freudian reading of jealousy, no? No? Let's say, let's say, I am jealous at my wife sleeping with you, but my, sorry to be again personal, don't take it as a direct advance, but my true reproach is, why did you choose her and not me? How should I put it? You know what I mean? That is uh, displaced, displaced homosexual jealousy, no? So why did you choose her instead of me? Okay, so, okay let, later. So, so let's go on. Uh, uh, in this sense, you know, in this sense, uh, you get my point. This is the problem of anti-Semitism. So then, to shock some of my American friends, I went to the end and said, God forbid, it's not true. But even if all, okay, almost all, there are things which are madness, open madness, like this idea of 19... You know, here you can see another lesson. How delicate category of belief is today, as we saw in the case of... uh, Um, uh, uh, Niels Bohr Uh, to believe in something you should always be careful at what level do we believe what does it mean to believe for example recently a friend sent me from Brazil an incredible book the book about Japanese community at the end of the World War II in Brazil you know what happened there the there were about i think 300,000 of them japanese in brazil in 1945 and the defeat of japan was such a shock sorry such a shock for them that abra- around half of them even a little bit more simply denied it this couldn't have happened and they claimed that in reality japan won and that United States are just propagating this news around the world to avoid a scandal. They even, I have the reproductions, this is madness. In forty six they falsified, fabricated a special issue of Life magazine with the cover photo of General MacArthur kneeling down be- beneath the Japanese emperor, admitting defeat and so on. Now, what is so mysterious here? Obviously, they were fanatically convinced but of superiority of Japan but at the same time at some level they must have known that it is a lie because they fabricated it you see the absolute uh, the ambiguity of belief I claim it's it's the same with anti-Semitism. one should be very precise how it functions because you know from socialism I remember from Poland a wonderful cynical joke Uh, referring to, you know, this old communist claim that socialist society unites, is a synthesis of all that was best in the past history. No? And the joke goes like this. Yes, our socialism is the synthesis of all the greatest achievements of the past. From (laughs) pre-class society, it it took primitivity. From ancient Greek society, it took it took slavery, from feudal society, it took brutal domination, from capitalism, it took exploitation, and now comes the pearl. From socialism, it took the name. (laughs) I think exactly the same, I hope you got the point, holds for anti-Semitism. From uh, the anti-Semitic figure of the Jew, From, from, uh, from, from rich bankers, it took exploitation... From, I don't know, amusement industry, it took this stupid commercial culture, and so on and so on, and from Jews it took the name. That is to say, that's how, what we call in psycholytic theory, Lacanian theory, the master signifier functions. It's a name which, in a way, creates the thing by masking the inconsistency of references. How do I make this? let me take you, an, my last, another example, you saw, you are too young, but maybe you saw it on DVD that Spielberg classic, his first mega hit, uh, Jaws. you know, about a uh, shark, the killing, no? Okay, now of course the naive, false question is what does the shark stand for? The shark killing people there, what does it symbolize? And there were many leftist analyses which perceived it as a rightist symbol, like shark stands for third world immigrants, the danger of nature, whatever. But you can also give it the opposite reading. Do you know that Fidel Castro is a great admirer? But what I want to say is that all these readings are wrong. Because the true question is not what does it truly mean. It means all of this, all these inconsistent fears. Imagine me, an ordinary citizen in the United States, which, haha, thanks God I'm not, I... Uh, I I fear nature, tornado, ecological catastrophe. I fear immigrants, normal racism, everyday life racism. I fear being exploited by big companies, whatever. And uh, the shark, in a way, condenses in one figure all these inconsistent fears. In the same way as, for example, in Germany, of the... 1920s and 1930s, ordinary German, after the military defeat and crisis, they feared financial exploitation, they national humiliation, uh, what they saw as sexual degradation, all this explosion of free sexuality, and the Jew became a figure which somehow, conda- a symbol which united all these fears, which is why, it, as I developed in my book, which I think is at least translated into Croat, uh, subject, uh, sub, I think it was uh, the Tickly subject, uh, yeah, which is why, uh, 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 how should I put it, it's not enough, I hope you will get it, to be truly anti-Semitic if you say, and I'm not saying you should say this, no, but just to give you the logic, if you say Jews are dirty, speculating, exploiting us, and so on, this is still a normal racist prejudice. You become truly anti-Semitic when you turn this around and when you say they are dirty, exploitative because they are Jews. You know, as if being a Jew is the mysterious X behind which, as it were, explains all of it. This is the the logic of fetishism at its purest. Now, uh, okay, since I say I will be a little bit shorter, no, but it looks, we will have to make a historical compromise between <laughs> short and long. Uh, let me just uh, go, because I would like to, uh, to then just to go with a couple of crucial points. Because, as I said, it's much more difficult to convince a fetishist, a fundamentalist fetishist. This is why I must, With all my sympathy for Palestinians, my God, I was three times in Ramallah, I gave talks there and so on, but I don't agree with some of my leftist friends who claim, you know, even when some of the Arabs appear anti-Semitic, we should understand this, they they were so brutally uh, disturbed by the Israeli invasion, that, okay, and then they claim this is just the first phase, sooner or later they will see that their true enemy Is not the Jew, but I don't know imperialism or whatever. I claim this second. What if this second moment never happens? I don't because you know if if they try to convince me when I had debates with them in Ramallah that you know ordinary people are confused. They are against the Jews, but give them some time and they will see that their true target is. But sorry, but you can say the same about Hitler. His true target was capitalism. He was just confused and attacked the Jews. It doesn't work here, this, uh, how should I call it, uh, logic of enlightenment. Now comes the concluding part where I would like to focus on how belief functions. I would like to go a little bit more into this, let's call it uh, 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 Niels Bohr paradox, of how we can, how I put it, Believe objectively. You don't have to believe. You can believe without believing. You believe in your practice. There is a joke which you all know, and maybe you even know how I read it, but I will read it a little bit differently today. I promise you, this is a last joke that I will repeat today. You must know it, which I think exemplifies this wonderfully. Do you know that joke about a stupid guy who thought he was... Uh, uh, a grain of corn. How do you say this? Cucurus corn. Yeah. A grain of corn. And you know, he was, you know the story. He was finally cured, left out of psychiatric hospital and came immediately running back. Psychiatrists ask him why, he says, because I saw a chicken, I was afraid the chicken will me, you know. Psychiatrist but you know that you are now human. He said, I know, but does the chicken know that I am no longer corn? But... Now, you may laugh at it as a joke, but sorry, can I tell you something to provoke you to the utmost. And I think I mentioned this in a different context yesterday. You know that maybe Yugoslavia disappeared because a chicken wasn't allowed to know. You know what I mean by this? The chicken was Tito. I think I mentioned this yesterday that I read in some memoirs that nomenclatura around Tito knew already in 72-73 that the Economic situation is horrible, and that sooner or later something will have to be done. This something of course would and indeed involve fall of the standard of living and so on and
1: what I read
0: in this i don 't know who the author is, one of these old Serb guys who now want to get some money selling memoirs that uh, then the top nomenclatura around Tito came to the conclusion that but my God, if we make this public. Tito is old, he will die unhappy. So it was a kind of a collective conclusion that Tito should not be told, so let us postpone the crisis till Tito dies and then allow to explode it. And this is what happened. Throughout the 70s, somehow the artificial half-welfare was sustained. As you probably know, the price was tremendous debt. And then, 10 years later, The crisis exploded, much worse crisis, uh, uh, combined with greater debt and so on. And again, why? And then that's how it began. I don't think that the the later crisis had had anything to do with any nationalist passions. Milosevic was simply the first to use, as already improvised yesterday, I think, uh, to use to use... This crisis presented a problem to communist nomenclatura, no? How to legitimize itself. And the only option, almost the only, not quite, was to play the nationalist card, no? And Milosevic perfected this formula. Nomenclatura can survive if it makes a pact with great writers and all those horrors and so on. But look at the fundamental paradox, which is, uh, again, literally, it was the structure of this joke. Tito was a chicken who shouldn't yet know. And, and now, so that you will not only say that I use this, although this is not comical, but also very tragical, only comical examples, what about another example uh, from our everyday life, so that you will not think that I am only making fun or what uh, you know isn 't it that Let me take even a very noble example let 's say I have cancer, of course, uh, hope it 's not true. you never know uh, I would uh, course, I, if I will be strong enough, if I were to be strong enough, I would try not to tell this to my children, and so on, you know. I will try precisely to, to not let them know. So you have this structure of uh, maintaining appearance, the chicken shouldn't know, which uh, lasts quite a lot. This uh, chicken shouldn't know logic, you find it also with the in the process of so-called uh, 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 Potemkin's villages, you know, I don't know how it was here, but I know in Slovenia, when it was known that Tito will visit a certain village, you know, the street was paved. The, the, this logic of Potemkin's village, where the leader is the chicken who shouldn't know, was brought to its extreme, I heard, towards the end of the 50s in China, when there was hunger, and Mao Zedong said, I read this in a very anti-Maoist book, those memoirs by his personal uh, doctor. Making it good, not like... Okay, now, so what I wanted to say here is, which is the underlying structure here? Now, to finish, I want to convert you a little bit to Marxism. I claim that the capital of Marx is still actual at this level, especially that old-fashioned, nobody reads it today, chapter on so-called commodity fetishism. What is Marx saying there? Something very precise. He is not saying that fetishism is our illusory misperception of how things really are. He's saying the exact opposite. Look, uh, li- he- here is the very first two sentences of that subchapter, you know, towards the end of the chapter one of Capital, Commodity Fetishism and Its Secret. It's a well known passage, but listen to it. A commodity appears at first sight an extremely obvious, trivial thing, but its analysis brings out that it is a very strange thing, abounding in metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties. Are you aware what Marx is saying here? One would expect him, practicing critique of ideology, to start with the mysterious phenomenon, religious, fantasy, and then to to demystify it. To demonstrate how what appears to us a metaphysical, sacred phenomenon is really generated. the life process, whatever. Here, he's saying almost the opposite. He says, no, what appears an everyday common object, the analysis, the critique for us... Mass- for Marx, the first step of critique is not like the Glorious Enver Mercosur decided when was it the early 60s to totally abolish religion. OK, then, it's not a, a criticize religion. You first have to even discover religion, where people don't see What does Marx mean here? Where is commodity fetishism for Marx? Let's vaguely distinguish you know the famous formula of Marx, of ideology, in Capital, where he says, in German, does need able-tunes. They don't know it, but they are doing it. Now, the primitive reading is, of course, people do one thing and they read in illusion, so they think another thing. Like, I'm doing something, but I am not aware what I'm really doing. So, the truth is, in what I'm doing, I have a false representation of what I'm doing. But uh, if you read really in a nice way Marx, you will see that he means the opposite, in the opposition between doing and thinking what you are doing, the illusion is in doing. Marx's thesis, to simplify it, is the following one. An ordinary subject in in a capitalist society is not a feminist in the sense that uh, I think money is something magic. An ordinary bourgeois subject is a kind of a British-minded utilitarian nominalist. He thinks money is just a kind of item sign which gives me right to a certain part of social product, nothing mysterious about it. Where is fetishism? It is in what you do when you interact. When you interact, you interact. As if you think that, you know, you practice your illusions, even if you are not aware of them. Your true belief is enacted in what you are doing. So it's a very nice paradox. Let's say you think that money is just a social phenomenon. And money really is a social phenomenon. But nonetheless, you live in a lie. Because there is a certain level in between. So you have here a wonderfully dialectical complication where it's not enough to distinguish between how things really are and how they appear to you. There is a third category of, paradoxically, how things really appear to you. Have you know? What you are not aware when you are in fetishism is not how things really are, but how things really appear to you. Let me give you a simpler example from psychoanalysis, very primitive one. An, an ordinary adolescent thinks his father is a jerk, impotent idiot, and so on. 99% it is true, I claim. So he thinks this, and the father really is that. Nonetheless, he lives in an illusion. How can you detect this illusion? Observe him when he really interacts with his father, and you will see a much more complex attitude of feeling of guilt, respect, and so on. So again, he thinks something about his father. His father really is dead, but there is a third level, and which determines his activity and so on and so on. Because of this complication, Marx never, interestingly enough, uses the term ideology for commodity fetishism. Because, you know, Marx likes to dismiss ideology as superstructure. But commodity fetishism is a strange ideology, which is not superstructure, but it's in the very heart of the economic reality itself. So, uh, 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 what I'm trying to say here is that the structure here gets so uh, complex. Why? Because in a similar way I claim our atheism functions today. We are... uh, uh, We can paraphrase as did my Slovene colleague Alenka Zupancic uh, in uh, her analysis of precisely of uh, of, uh, the role of belief today, she applies this joke on a chicken to the problem of religion. And she says, she gives a wonderful example. She says, let's imagine a society of enlightened atheist terror, where... A certain person is submitted to this ideological pressure and is finally convinced not to believe in God. There is no God. God doesn't exist. Then he is dismissed and he comes running back and says that he is afraid of being punished by God. But you know now that God doesn't exist. He answers, yes, but does God know that he doesn't exist, you know? (laughs) And I claim that this is now a long story. This is why I dwell so long in Christianity, as an atheist. When people ask me, what are you, I claim I'm a Christian atheist. Because, as my favorite theologist, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, developed, in Christianity, for a brief moment, God himself knows that he doesn't exist. You have this moment, you remember that crucial moment of Christianity, where, you know, on the cross, this Eli, Eli, lama, sabachtami, you know, where Christ, the dying Christ, addresses God, father, father, why have you abandoned me? This is a great problem for theologists. Every time that I debate with a priest or whatever, I ask him a simple question. How are we to read these lines of Christ? Are they... Does it mean that Christ really was in despair, or does it mean that it was just a spectacle for us humans? Now, both possibilities are a catastrophe, because if Christ, it was only to impress humans, then we have a very obscene version of Christianity as, basically, God wanted to impress humans and stage a spectacle of the suffering of his son, but... In reality, it was all a joke, and the son knew, okay, let's pretend that I suffer, but hide that in ten minutes, I will be back up with you. So, but if Christ really thought he is lost, then don't forget, Christ is not a symbol, a messiah, Christ is a living God. So, God himself was desperate. For a brief moment, let me go on. So, uh, so, uh, uh, the origin, if you want to have the best of Christianity that we need or even of this the founding text of all three religions of the book Christianity, Islam, Judaism is for me the book of, how do you call it Job, the guy who was screwed up and lost everything by God Job, you know, in the Old Testament Uh, why is this so shocking? this is, I think, the greatest text single because what happens there? read it really closely you know the story this is, I think... We should dismiss this. This is probably some pagan joke later inserted. The beginning is wonderful, but it's too cynical. You remember that after dinner, drinking coffee, whatever, God and devil debate. God says, ha ha, I have one who is totally faithful to me, and then God makes a bet with devil. But that's, let's forget this. What happens is this. Okay, things go back for bad for Job, no? He loses, and it's nice to read the Bible, in this series, it's, um, he loses his goats, his cows, his wife, and so on. No. That's the Bible at his best in this series. But the, the crucial thing is that then he is desperate. Then three ideologists come. Remember, three theological friends, what do they try? They try to convince him, each of them, that his suffering has some deeper meaning. That's all. The first one tells him basically, uh, God is just, so if you suffer, you must have done something even if you don't know what, you must be guilty. The second one gives a different story, God is testing you, you will be rewarded and so on. And incidentally, this is the mystery, here you see the limitation of the Bible, at the end Job is restored all, no? But uh, what happens... With his wife and daughters and so on who died, no, they are, somehow they disappear from the picture. No, they are not restored. Okay, but let me go on. So, and Job, what is the greatness of Job? You have to read carefully the Bible, the Book of Job. He does not insist, "I am not guilty." He just insists on, "I don't accept that my suffering has any meaning." You know, he rejects this religious justification of, oh, if you suffer, it has a deeper meaning, and so on, and so on. So then comes the most beautiful moment, when God arrives, you know, he says something wonderful, he says, uh, and this is, I think, the greatness of Judaism. Basically, God arrives and intervenes, Uh, it's a little bit like, uh, did you see that wonderful scene in Annie Hall, Woody Allen, well, at the beginning of the film, they wait in line, Woody Allen character and his friend, and debate some theoretical point of Marshall McLuhan. And then Marshall McLuhan comes and says, no, you are totally